Hi, my name is Rich Brodsky. I'm a pediatric emergency physician and a parent. I know that going to the emergency room with your child can be a scary and confusing experience. I've been there on both sides. That's why I wanted to bring Pep Talk to you. Pediatric Emergencies for Parents, a podcast where I talk with experts about problems that bring you to the emergency department with your child. The goal is to make parents and others who take care of kids more informed. And we're doing it one pep talk at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pep Talk. This episode should be launching the day after Valentine's Day. So I hope that you celebrated with a loved one or that you treated yourself nicely. It's also the week after the Super Bowl. So I hope that everyone that enjoys watching football had a great time. Personally, being a resident of the greater Philadelphia area, I was rooting for the other Kelsey, Jason. However, things being what they were, I didn't mind keeping the victory in the family. This huge event coincides with our subject today. Over the last several years, head injuries and concussions have gained a lot of attention in the public eye. From the 2015 Will Smith movie titled Concussion, to the recent discovery of long-term brain injury, otherwise known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, concern over the short-term and long-term effects of head injuries has grown. Today, I'll be discussing this subject with my two experts, fellow pediatric emergency medicine doctor, Dr. Mintu Do, and pediatric neurologist, Dr. Karishma Parikh. So let's take a listen. Like last time, I'd like to give a quick disclaimer before we get started. Pep Talk is an informational show. Every patient and every situation is different. This show is not intended to be direct medical advice. If you have any questions about your child and their health, please call your doctor or seek appropriate medical care. Today, I'm joined by two amazing guests who are going to help us with today's subject, which is head injuries and concussions. So first, I have Dr. Mintu Do. Hello. Hello, Dr. Do. Would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. My name is uh, Mintu Do. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine doctor for the Rutgers Medical School in New Jersey. I specialize in taking care of little children from zero to 21 years old. And my areas of interest include, of course, head injuries and emergency transport, ambulance rides and things like this. Oh, so you're both the transport physician, the one who coordinates that kind of thing. Yeah, I help coordinating transports for children to the hospital from the fields or from other hospitals and, and essentially help reviewing the guidelines of, of things that we can do to improve with that regards. But my uh, primary function is in the hospital, in the pediatric emergency department. Also, I have Dr. Krishma Parikh. Would you like Hi. to introduce yourself? Hi. Hi. Of course. Yeah, I'm Karishma Parikh. I'm a pediatric neurologist also at Rutgers Riverwood Johnson Medical School. I also have a subspecialty in neuro-oncology, so I also see patients with uh, brain tumors. Okay. So today's subject, we are going to be talking about falls, head injuries, concussions. The typical patient is usually at home, either a child or a teenager in other risky situations, but child will fall, hit their head, end up having some swelling on their head, the family notices that they're crying, or maybe they are vomiting, or maybe something is worse. And then they are brought to the emergency department, sometimes by ambulance, sometimes by people bringing children in their cars, 
Dr. Doe, what is the typical head injury patient that we see in the emergency department? Well, we first have to divide the, the patients that come with head injuries to the pediatric emergency department in two major categories. There's going to be your, your accidental low impact injuries, uh, like, like a children falling or a ball hit to the heads. And then you're unfortunately also going to have your, your severely traumatic injuries, uh, such as falling off a building or car accidents. So those are going to be very different. But I think today's the topic would be those smaller injuries. I'm interested in both. In both. In both. Let's talk about both. Let's talk about both. <laughs> but let's say exactly that point. How do you distinguish in the mechanism between what is something that is likely a minor injury and something that is more concerning that's going to upgrade your level of concern? Right off the bat, when a patient arrives to the emergency department, we have a, a very rigorous triage system where the nurse will see your child in the waiting room and immediately be able to decide if a patient needs immediate attention or if they can afford to wait a little bit in the waiting room before they get seen. That triage process will immediately recognize a patient that is what we considered a high risk versus lower risk for head injuries. And then when the doctor sees a patient, they will do obviously a more thorough exam, including a neurological exam and a musculoskeletal exam, which would look at everything from skin, bones, and how they interact with the doctors. What are you generally looking for in a patient that has a head injury? So for patients who have head injuries, we'll start with the obvious from the get-go. Was there any bleeding involved? Was there any loss of consciousness? In other words, did the patient pass out when he had the head injury, he or she? When I mention bleeding is literally, are there blood coming out of any orifices, meaning the ears, the nose, the mouth, the, the, the eyes, or the skin of your face or your scalp? We'll also be asking about any type of symptoms that the patient may, may have had at the scene or after the scene, such as I mentioned before, uh, loss of consciousness, passing out any type of abnormal movement such as seizures or lack of movement like paralysis, unable to move your arms, your legs, unable to speak, unable to swallow. We'll also ask the parents about level of consciousness. Has it been declining? Has your child been sleeping since the injury or have they been just crying nonstop? We'll also be asking about vomiting or other symptoms that should not have been there otherwise. So what then, if you have a patient that you're more concerned about, I know I'm basically asking you, there are two diagnoses of a patient that has a head injury that we're more concerned about, and they are concussion and hemorrhage, right? So which, would, which of those are worse? The hemorrhage would be the worst one. And talk to me about intracranial hemorrhage. What does that mean? So intracranial hemorrhage, let's start with the definition. It literally means that there's a bleeding inside your cranial cavity, meaning inside your skull. So we're not talking about a little bump on the head that has a little bit of swelling. We're talking about a, a bleeding inside the cavity, which if left unchecked or not monitored, could have devastating consequences. This would be your severe injuries that needs to be acted upon immediately. And usually for that, we would start with a CAT scan, CT scan, otherwise known as computed tomography. So a CAT scan. So that's the test. CAT scan is the test that you would do 
to check for an intracranial hemorrhage, one of these more severe concerning conditions? So that's a yes and no answer, actually. A lot of parents think that any patients that come to the emergency department with a head injury will automatically obtain a CAT scan yeah, to why not? rule out a bleed. But why not? Why? What's the, why what's not? the downside? That is what the, is the downside? The, question. the downside yeah. really is that every test that we order is not a benign thing. So just as a blood test, even though as simple as you can think, does involve a needle into the arm. And the first rule of medicine is actually first do no harm. So when it comes to CAT scan, you have to realize that it does involve quite a bit of radiation. And what I mean by radiation is that we do have an increased risk of lifetime brain cancer every time you expose a child, a developing child's brain to radiation. On average, you would have to expect that a CAT scan of the brain or CAT scan of the head involved at least 300 x-rays worth of radiation, which in itself can increase your lifetime risk of cancer by at least one in 1,000. So, okay, so does everybody who get a CAT scan get cancer? That is also an interesting question. So again, it is a risk. It is not a absolute. So the more CAT scan you get in your life, the more you increase your lifetime risk of cancer. Meaning that if a child only gets one CAT scan in his whole life, the likelihood that they will develop cancer by the time they're 100 years old is extremely low. But the expectation in this day and age is that a lot of people will obtain more and more CAT scan as they live their life. So we're trying to do less or not scan when it is not absolutely indicated or necessary. So then how do you make that decision as to when it might be indicated? So lucky for us, and interestingly, about 10, I think maybe almost 15 years ago, a, a pediatric network of hospitals in the North American continent came together and created something called PCARN, the Pediatric Emergency Research Care Network. It was a consortium, a group of hospitals, pediatric emergency department that came together and decided that why do we scan children's automatically? Why do we scan so much? Is it absolutely necessary? How many times do we find injuries that are clinically significant or that would require surgical interventions? The study that Dr. Doe is referencing is called Identification of Children at Very Low Risk of Clinically Important Brain Injuries After Head Trauma, colon, a prospective cohort study. In this study, over 42,000 patient cases were analyzed with almost 15,000 head CTs obtained. After looking at the data, the researchers, led by uh, Dr. Nathan Cooperman, discovered that if a child who suffered a head trauma does not have several obvious outward signs of severe brain injury and meets other criteria, then the risk of having a bleed that requires neurosurgery is exceptionally small. It cannot be understated how much this study revolutionized the way that we practice emergency medicine. Sparing children unnecessary radiation from CT scans became the new standard of care. In other words, if a CT was deemed necessary, it was, of course, appropriate. But many parents could be reassured that they didn't need a CT scan in the first place. That consortium, PCARN, was actually very successful with their first project that they tackled, which was the head injury guidelines on when and when to not head CT scan. 
So tell me, what am I looking for as a physician that says like this patient needs a scan? So we're talking about severity of neurological symptoms. Loss of consciousness was one of the criteria that they were looking at. Like how long did the patient pass out? Did he pass out at all? They also looked at how many times the patients vomited. Does one vomit mean that you've got intracranial hemorrhage? No. No? Actually, their data showed that even if you have 10 vomiting, it does not necessarily mean you have an intracranial hemorrhage. It is just one check mark that you put on your list of factors to consider. They also looked at bleeding coming out of the ears, bleeding coming out of the nose, altered mental status, meaning is the child extremely fussy? Is the child not responsive to normal parents' stimuli? Is the patient's neurological exam abnormal? Meaning, are their pupils equal? Are their pupils the same size on the left and the right? Is the patient able to talk when usually they're a radio talk show host? And oh, I'm sorry, I have an intracranial <laughs> hemorrhage then. Just, sometimes um, that I feel that I, so my the, brain is They, work they right. came up with a, a pretty regimented set of criteria for the doctors to, to check mark if you want. And if there was multiple amount of check mark, it would be a advisable course of action to do a head CT. But just remember that those guidelines are exactly what they are. They are guidelines. They are not strict enforced rules. Hmm. It is still in the end at the discretion of the emergency physicians to decide whether or not they would like to order a CT scan. Mm. Meaning that a patient might meet all the check marks, but in the end is still running around the ER after one hour observation. And therefore we might decide instead of doing a CT scan to continue observing the patient and then decide at a later time. So my three-year-old is running around the emergency department after having a head injury. They have this gigantic swelling on the front of their head. They may have had a little nosebleed because they fell and they hit their nose. They vomited three or four times, but they're still running around talking normally. You're not going to necessarily get a, a CT scan on that. Exactly. Kid. This is not a, a necessarily black or white condition. Mm. As you mentioned, a, a child who hit their head on the face will probably have a nosebleed regardless of whether they have an intracranial hemorrhage. If they have a little bit of a goose egg on the forehead, that is actually one of the conditions from the guidelines that tells you that it's a reassuring sign as opposed to having a goose egg in the back of the head or behind hmm. the ears. So the Those front of the head more... is a lower risk than the back of the head? That is correct. The front of the head is actually sturdier, if you want. It's a stronger bone. So having a hematoma or a goose egg in the frontal bones of the skull is less likely to be of significance compared to one behind the ear or on the top of the head. Mm. So sometimes I'll explain this to parents in that I made this up as an example, but that when we were evolving, we used to, as tribes, run and club each other in the front of the head. So the front of the head became stronger against that kind of thing. But it wasn't until later that we used to hit each other in the back of the head. So <laughs> that's how that's a little weaker as far as our evolutionary yeah, concerns go. Absolutely. I understand that these criteria about when to get a CT scan and a head injury and when not to is divided into two for children that are under two years old and children that are over two years old. And that in the under two years old, vomiting is not even a consideration. They say if the kid vomits, it doesn't matter. That's not part of the consideration. Why is that? Because children's less than two-year-olds tend to vomit when they're upset, just crying sometimes. So you take my toy away, I vomit. 
because I'm upset. You do this, I vomit because I'm upset. I bang my head, I vomit because I'm upset. But it doesn't necessarily mean I have intracranial hemorrhage or a very severe head injury. Correct. And, and therefore, you, you have to take all information that you gather with a grain of salt. And in this case, the vomiting is not going to be having as much weight as it would in a 15-year-old who comes in with multiple vomiting after a head trauma. The thing you have to realize about children's age below two, as opposed to above two, is that it is more difficult to do a proper neurological exam on a child that essentially would not even listen to you at baseline. So it is really, <laughs> do you don't listen? It is really difficult to ask a child less than two and even a three-year-old to follow the light. Blink, close your eyes, stick your tongue out or follow the finger. These exams are actually therefore less reliable because of the cooperation that you can elicit from that age group. And therefore, the rules or guidelines from that PCORN criteria for head scans are a little bit modified, but they're not extremely different from each other. This sounds like a great place to take a break. When we come back, we will move away from the subject of CT scans to check for those dangerous injuries and onto the subject of concussions and how they are managed. That's next when we return to Pep Talk. So if you have a child or a teenager that has a head injury, and let's say they had a CT scan, or you feel like a CT scan is not necessary, but they do have other symptoms, we would call that then a concussion in that case, when they, they have some neurologic symptoms and yet there's nothing bleeding in their brain and we think that they're otherwise stable and okay. So I'm going to come to you, Dr. Parikh. Thank you for, for oh, being thank so you for patient. Having me. Yeah. And thank you for coming. What, what's happening in our brain when we get a concussion? You're a neurologist. Tell me what's going on in our brain when we get a concussion. So actually, a lot of people use concussion and mild TBI or mild traumatic brain injury interchangeably. And some people would argue about that. But regardless, what we think concussions are or what's happening, it's, it's like a whiplash kind of acceleration, de-acceleration type of injury. Your, your brain is moving around. I had a, a mentor that used to describe it as if you think about your brain as a, a broccoli stalk, sort of speak, the broccoli at the top is flinging around from the stalk. And that's what happens. Um, the symptoms that come from that is really dependent on the person. So that's why the definition of concussion and kind of what happens is so variable. So what symptoms do we generally see? In, obviously, everything's variable. But what symptoms do we generally see in a patient that has a concussion? So the symptoms, like we said, are, are quite variable. It's, and no, just like no two people are the same. No two concussions are really the same. You can see things related to headaches, photophobia, or light sensitivity. You can see things related to sleep, more sleep, less sleep, just being overall irritable, feeling tired. Vomiting is definitely something we may see. But as Dr. Doe alluded to, vomiting in itself is a little bit of a confusing thing for parents to look at and to think about, even as clinicians. There is some degree of vomiting that we do expect, but obviously if there's a lot of vomiting that doesn't stop, a headache that just doesn't get better. Those are the type of things we think about for more serious conditions. But we definitely see headaches. We definitely see light sensitivity. We see sound sensitivity sometimes. Uh, some kids may say that their vision just doesn't feel right. Blurry vision, loss of vision, those are more serious conditions, of course. We don't think about that in the kind of concussion realm. You can also have 
overall cognitive slowing. So just feeling out of it, feeling having a hard time focusing. So these are the way we think about it. Usually about four different subtypes of symptoms that we have. Please tell me, what are the four different subtypes of, <laughs> of symptoms? That's, so, um, that's like, like a great set. Yeah, four categories. Yeah. What uh, are so, the four categories? Yeah, so somatic. So that's somatic. is like the headaches, the vomiting, the light sensitivity, so to speak. Um, you can have the cognitive stuff, so the cognitive slowing, the memory changes, attention changes, that um, mood type of related changes. So feeling tired, irritable, depressed, anxious, and then the sleep related issues. So sleeping too much or too little um, or just feeling tired or fatigued in general. So a teenager with uh, a concussion, how would you tell the difference is my big question. <laughs> Teenagers with concussions tend to be right. irritable. Right. They tend to sleep a lot or not enough. Right. Right. They, they tend to sometimes give their parents a little bit of an attitude. Yeah, kind of thing. So how can you tell the Do difference? Do you have a teenager at home? <laughs> not yet, but I'm working on it. Yes, if that's a great question. And, and in all seriousness, um, it is sometimes hard to know based on kind of what is going on. But it's really the differences between before and after the injury. And like I said, no two kids are the same. At times it could be that this is just a little bit more exaggerated. He or she is, is just a little bit off what he was or she was before they, they bonked their head, so to speak. Okay. Dr. Doe, if you have diagnosed someone with a concussion in the emergency department, what do you usually tell them for the first 24 to 48 hours once they go home? So that's interesting because I have a lot of parents who obviously will ask if their children's is a very active child, let's say sports or swim or gymnastic, they will ask immediately, can they go back to swim tonight? Can they go back to sports tomorrow? And I will usually tell them absolutely not. When you have a concussion, the symptoms may very well get worse over the next few days. And usually we say five to seven days. So if they were to return to their activity immediately, they run the risk of that second concussion syndrome or to injure themselves because they are just not fit 100% to perform those activities. Wait, you just said something that's very interesting to me. What is second hit syndrome, second concussion syndrome? So second hit or second concussion syndrome is essentially having a second injury to the brain or a second concussion when you're still in the process of recovering from your first concussion. And unfortunately, those are extremely dangerous because they could cause severe brain swelling or as we call brain edema, which could be devastating, uh, including death. So really? second hit syndrome is something that we take very seriously, which is why uh, we don't ever recommend return to contact sports immediately after a diagnosed concussion. Okay. Aside from sports, let's say I have a child that is not as active, is not a football player, it doesn't go to swim. And let's say that I just want to know, what should I be doing for them for the next 24 to 48 hours? So the, the key word is actually brain rest. That's why I like to, to tell the parents. Back in the days, we would say no television and no reading books. But nowadays, I just tell the parents no screen time. So no TikToks, no FaceTiming, no video games, and absolutely no television. The reason behind that is that the stimuli that the television or the screen applies to your eyes can make your concussion syndrome worse. It can cause more photophobia, more headaches, and then vomiting. And before you know it, you'll be back to the emergency department saying, my child is now worse. Mm -hmm. But we try to prevent that by telling the parents to prevent as much stimuli, stimulus, stimuli as possible. But we know, again, that teenagers are really hard to control in this day and age. So if anything, I'll let them do 10 minutes on 
and see if they can handle it, but no more than an hour a day. Yeah, I usually have to say it to a teenager, like, you are going to be bored. This is going to be a problem. Uh, I usually say that, uh, I'm sorry, we have to take away your phone at this point. Like, it, it becomes an issue because they would be on it all the time otherwise. But along those lines, is it's a brain rest, but also activity rest. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want a, a, a child to go back out in the neighborhood on their bicycle by themselves if they have a concussion, because they could get into an accident because they're not able to pay as much attention as they usually would. Yeah, I think yeah. that goes along with what we think about concussion in the aftermath of the first couple of days, that it's not just the brain rest, but the activity rest. You're presuming that your reaction time, your cognitive time, your just not feeling well, tired, all of this is a little bit off in the first few days after concussions. Even if a patient sees me in an outpatient, that's what we're talking about too. Taking the rest, both cognitively and in terms of activity rest, brain rest, as Dr. Doe said, but really not also just going from zero to 100, or 100 to zero rather, in terms of just completely stopping everything, which you should do in the first day, but then slowly accelerating how much you feel based on the symptoms that you feel and responding to that. I usually also say that you have to treat a sprained brain like a sprained ankle. If you were to have an ankle injury, the last thing you would want to do is immediately get up and start walking and running on it again. You have to give it some rest for a little while and then slowly begin mm -hmm. to add a little bit more weight and pressure. And you can do the same thing with cognitive load. We know now and are learning more about it that kids who do have history of migraines or anxiety, learning disabilities, ADHD, any other sort of baseline underlying things may predispose them to have worsening of symptoms or more prolonged symptoms. But the type of symptoms that we're looking at are pretty variable. Returning back to play, returning back to activity, if you're in a sports setting, is definitely you need 100% rest. What becomes trickier is the cognitive reacceleration of how much you want to involve yourself. The first 24 to 48 hours are critical. But like you said, most teenagers, most children actually are going to start getting pretty bored uh, pretty soon after. And there's a lot of stimuli all around between tablets, phones, lights, and, and activities. And it's hard, of course, as an athlete also to sit on the side and not participate. The whole point of both physical exercise and mental exercise, so to speak, is to do what you can and not just do 100% wind down, but think about what are the type of things that are inducing symptoms. So usually what I tell my patients are, what are the type of things that induce your symptoms? And that's kind of part of our initial evaluation a couple of days afterwards. Is it, is it reading? Is it looking on your phone that gives you a headache? Is it a, a brisk walk or running for the bus that kind of gives you a headache and you feel dizzy and nauseous? Or is it purely just doing anything and you want to sleep all day and that's giving you a headache? So listening to your body to say, these are the things I can do and these are the things that I can't do. And that kind of comes up with a more personalized, individualized plan in terms of how do you return back to your normal activity, um, usually after the first you know, day or so. Dr. Parikh, when does a patient who has been discharged from the department need to see a pediatric neurologist? So fundamentally, it, it doesn't have to be a pediatric neurologist. Of course, I love seeing concussion patients, as do my colleagues, but it doesn't really have to be a, a pediatric neurologist. It could be a pediatrician who feels comfortable with concussion. It could be a sports medicine physician, and it could be anyone, really anyone in between. Thankfully, we have a lot more awareness about concussions and understanding about it. We have a lot more uh, guidelines, not the most concrete of guidelines because it's still evolving, but we have a lot more literature to suggest how do we approach uh, concussions uh, for both 
young children, pediatric patients, adolescent patients in general. So no, I, I don't have to see them. Anyone who feels comfortable giving these same sort of guidelines seems comfortable enough to think about how to return back to play. Do special accommodations for school need to be given in terms of advancing cognitive and physical rest? Taking breaks when you can, that's a big part of concussion recovery. Does the patient need a little extra time at school for test taking? Does the patient need some breaks to take a nap during the day? These are all types of guidelines that we can provide as a neurologist, but also a pediatrician. So we have uh, standardized letters and things like that kind of help with that recovery period. One of the things I always love talking about is the myths that surround a lot of the things that we do. One of the biggest myths that involve head injuries and concussions is the amount of time that you need to stay awake after the head injury. Dr. Doe, when is it safe to fall asleep? When is it safe to go to get some rest after a head injury? So. This is an interesting question because we have to go back in, in time a little bit and realize that in, in the early days uh, of medicine, when the CT scanners, MRIs and uh, whatnot were not available, the regular physician didn't have a lot of tools to be able to differentiate between a concussion or a head uh, injury involving a bleed. And usually when you have an intracranial hemorrhage, you would expect that the level of consciousness of your patients would steadily decline over time after the injury. And therefore, back then, indications for keeping patients awake within the first day after the injury uh, made sense. You wanted to make sure that they were able to stay awake and that they were not declining in their consciousness. What you're saying is that there was nothing dangerous about falling asleep, but that was what doctors used to That was check. one of the tools yeah. that they could use, yeah. but it was not the only tool. Okay. Nowadays, we have a lot of families coming in saying, grandma told me that I'm supposed to keep him awake all night. The point is, now that you are here in the ER or in the pediatric neurology office, you have been evaluated by a trained professional who can differentiate between a severe, clinically severe head injury versus a mild head trauma. And therefore, we can tell you right there that no, you do not need to keep your child awake all night because we have evaluated your child and are reassured that it's very unlikely that he will worsen. And that, and that probably doesn't really help with the brain rest either, keeping your child awake. Right. So that's definitely against what we, we want to do for anyone, any kid trying to recover from a, an injury. I will usually tell a family that the whole stay awake on me military movies and like when you're in a movie and, and you get hit in the head, that is generally for the movies that we don't do that. In actuality, I usually encourage my patients to sleep more especially over the next 24 to 40 hours, I tell them to let them sleep as much as possible, part of that brain rest that you're talking Absolutely. about. And, and hydration is super important. Eating well is really important. All normal resting like you would, like anything else, ankle sprain, even a cold, you need to take care of yourself during that, that first 24 to 48 hours for sure. But I'll usually end that, that part of that conversation telling mom, I know you're not going to sleep tonight and it's okay if you want to sleep next to your child tonight. But please let him sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's important too. I love that. It's a great piece of advice. You can check on him, but without waking him. Yes, absolutely. And we know that parents are going to do that. Yeah. Anyone who cares for a child, it's going to just watch them after they have had injury. And there's nothing we could do to stop that, no. nor do we want to. Speaking of other myths that, that I do run into sometimes in the emergency department when parents ask questions about concussion, the first one that comes to mind after the, do I need to keep them up all night, is the... Does my child really have a concussion since his head didn't hit anything? 
And the answer is actually yes. As Dr. Parikh mentioned earlier, a whiplash injury from a car accident can cause sometimes a concussion. You don't have to have an actual hit of a ball or your head onto the tarmac to cause a concussion. Any type of shaking, even from a roller coaster, can cause you to have a concussion. Absolutely. And I think the hardest part of concussions is that we don't have a specific test to confirm it. Even if we do the head CT or an MRI, we're doing it to rule out scarier, bigger things. The concussion itself, we don't usually see it on imaging. We don't have any blood tests specifically for it. We have no way of predicting how he or she's going to feel both immediately and how long the symptoms are going to last for. And really, the mechanism of the concussion can be very variable. I've had a patient have really long, prolonged concussion symptoms just from hitting his head on a window that kind of bumped down when he was trying to raise it. And it could be any one of those things. See, I'm glad you brought that up because another myth is that if I have a concussion, I have to get an MRI. Absolutely. Yeah. And they don't. Absolutely. They don't. They don't absolutely need uh, to do it. And as Dr. Do mentioned about the whole head CT thing, as a neurologist and as a neuro-oncologist, as physicians, we don't love doing head CTs unless we really need to. And MRIs, in a sense, are, are better modalities for imaging. It gives us a lot more specific information. But even said that, doing an MRI really isn't going to change what we do, how we think about the concussion. It's not going to confirm that he or she has a concussion. And it's really not necessary. And it's not something that I would recommend to have unless we really need it. MRIs have no radiation exposure Absolutely. to them. Let me ask then, Dr. Doe, why don't we just MRI every three-year-old that comes to the ER instead of doing a CT? Isn't that better for the child? Yes and no. So as Dr. Perrick alluded to, the MRI is a better modality, no radiation, better imaging to look at more detailed abnormalities. However, an MRI does involve quite a few things that a lot of people don't know about. An MRI is not a 10-second study like a CT scan. You don't go in and out of the scanner in less than a minute. You would require a lot of preparation with the MRI tech screening you for any type of magnets or metal or devices that you would have in your body, like a pacemaker, to see if you're even eligible for that MRI. Also, an MRI is a study that takes at the minimum 30 minutes, if not sometimes one hour. It is extremely difficult to get any child less than 10 years old to sit still for 30 minutes, let alone one hour. So getting an MRI would most often require to put the child to sleep, which would involve a pediatric anesthesiologist. This in itself is not a benign procedure. It involves a lot of risks. And finally, when it comes to MRI, you have to realize that there's not that many MRIs that can be done in a day. As I mentioned, if most studies take an hour and you only have one MRI machine in the hospital, you can only do 24 in that day. So there's always going to be a long line ahead of you. And in order to get an MRI emergently after a head injury, we must have a very strong index of suspicion that we might find something. And we're generally worried more about spinal cord issues in that case. That is you know, correct. CT scan is very good at looking at the brain for these things, but if you really want MRI if you're looking at spinal injuries, as I understand. Most often, if we were to order an MRI of the brain, we would also most often order an MRI of the spine to look for other lesions that would be associated with it. And at that point, the MRI of one hour becomes an MRI of two or three hours as mm. well. Mm. And of course, we would want to do an MRI if there's any other reason, back to Dr. Doe's initial assessment, if there's anything in that to suggest that we need to do further imaging, of course, that's our priority. But for mild injuries and or concussions, for all the reasons that Dr. Doe mentioned, is absolutely quite 
quite a hassle in a sense, and, and it's not going to really change what we do. So I could add, if it does take a while to obtain that MRI and you're really concerned about a true dangerous head injury, at that point, a CT scan would be more indicated than an MRI. Waiting for that MRI does not make sense. I was also considering the fact that if an MRI takes an hour, that is going to significantly prolong the amount of time that you're in the emergency department too. And being in an emergency department is also not a benign thing in and of itself. Dr. Parikh. When am I calling you at three in the morning about a head injury? What types of things does the ER consult neurology for at that time? So it goes back to that initial neurological evaluation. The mechanism of injuries is a big part of it. The persistence or any sort of loss of consciousness, the, the degree of fall, these are all the type of initial criteria. But also, if the patient is having weakness, if the patient is having difficulty talking, is there a reason to think that the, the injury in itself is not just a concussion. And, and it's not to put lightly that concussions are just a concussion, but we're looking at more acute neurological injuries that may involve the intervention of a neurosurgeon, unfortunately, or a neurology consult, which is when you might be calling me. If any of those initial examinations that we obviously rely on our pediatric emergency room colleagues just don't seem consistent with what we would expect after a head injury, absolutely. Please call me at 3 a.m. You're about the only one that says that it's okay for me to call you at 3 a.m. But... And to add on to that, as I mentioned before, it is more on the rarer side when I would be ordering a CT scan for a patient that comes in with concussion symptoms, but not necessarily a high risk of a brain bleed. But if I am very concerned that this patient is getting worse as far as a concussion component, I will most likely get a CT scan to, again, rule out a bleed. But if I am concerned about that patient, I might admit them to the hospital. And that would be when I would be consulting the pediatric neurologist to come and evaluate the patient as well. Dr. Parikh, if a patient is not performing well at school after a concussion, what advice do you generally tend to give both families and, and schools and departments about how to proceed with that kind of thing? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and a lot of times that's one of the reasons that we see patients come to our office. Oftentimes in the first one to two weeks, we really expect kids who have had concussions to really start having improvements and how they're feeling. Their symptoms should gradually and progressively start getting better. To go back to my earlier point, if a kid has had learning issues in the past, attention-related issues in the past, dyslexia, ADHD, maybe some developmental delay, even migraines, there is a chance to have persistence of concussion symptoms afterwards. And this may be seen in the school or academic setting. Finishing homework might be difficult. Finishing a test on time might be difficult. Just saying making it through the day might be hard because of having a headache, just being tired, fatigued, or just feeling out of it. Many of our patients say that they just feel foggy and have just a sensation of just not feeling like themselves. So what we encourage is once you've had that initial evaluation with a pediatrician, a sports medicine physician, pediatric neurologist, ideally uh, you should have one between the, the first one to two weeks after being seen in the emergency room. Or if you've not gone to the emergency room, seeing someone within the first one to two weeks, that's definitely something that we all try to encourage to give uh, some sort of rubric to the school system. Let me ask you, how long do concussions last? I understand that it can vary greatly, but right. uh, what, what is the duration of a large majority of them? But how long can right. they go out? So majority of the concussions, I would say 
they last between one to two weeks. Uh, most of them, I would say, have a recovery within the first month. Persistent post-concussive syndrome is greater than 28 days. And there are some studies that suggest that 80 to 90 percent of kids, patients, have a full recovery within the first one to three months, which is a huge range, but usually within the first month is what we expect. There's a lot of studies to understand what are the risk factors going into it that makes you have persistent post-concussive syndrome. And that's a lot of what we're trying to figure out using initial examinations and understanding the patient profile going into a concussion. Obviously, if you've had many concussions before, that puts you in a different category. But in general, we expect a pretty good recovery within the first month, if not sooner. Okay. So you just said multiple concussions. I have to bring up all right. of the NFL studies that have been going on right. and that a lot, there's been a lot of press about concussions. These NFL players find that they have, for all intents and purposes, brain damage mm -hmm. it, it, when they, they get older in life and whatnot. How many concussions does it take to get you there? Unfortunately, we don't know the right answer. A lot of there was a lot of media and press about CTE because of the Steelers NFL player and Will Smith's movie, et cetera. A lot of that was based on postmortem pathology results, the increase in this tau protein that was seen, ongoing degenerative brain injury. After so after, after they had, had died. Cut, after yeah. they had died, exactly. Yeah. Multiple concussions. The fact is that there is no magic number. Obviously, the importance of treating each concussion individually is very important and making sure you're resting before you go back to play fully recovered is also very important. If a child has had multiple concussions because of a sport that they're playing, football does get a bad rap, but there are a lot of other sports that also cause concussion, including soccer, hockey, synchronized swimming. There's a lot of high concussion sports that we really don't know about, actually. And so repeated hits in any form is not a great idea. Additionally, helmets are very helpful, but in some ways, helmets can be a part of the problem. There is additional acceleration, deacceleration injury that happens with the weight of a helmet in a developing brain, neck muscles, upper back extremities. There's variabilities in terms of head size, head development, and overall musculoskeletal development that happens at different stages that could also add to the contribution of the acceleration, deacceleration injury. So the weight of the helmet itself actually makes your head go faster in one direction or another. Absolutely. And that's what you're talking about, exactly. right? Acceleration, deacceleration. Exactly. Okay. I, I would never say, please do not wear a helmet because of that. <laughs> but it's just, it, there are so many different factors that can contribute to concussions, just part of it. Dr. Doe and I just made a face. We made the it's same face when swimming. you said synchronized yeah, swimming because it's not something that you think about well, as a high concussion sport. But actually, as you think I've, about I've, it, I'm like, actually, wait a minute. I've actually had two patients with synchronized swimming and, and the, my reaction was the first when I saw them and I asked them and they're like, before we're synchronized, we're asynchronized. We're, we're bobbing heads. So <laughs> I, that's, it's pretty high in the concussion sports. That's very interesting. So Dr. Parikh. After a patient is discharged from the emergency department and they have a concussion or they've been diagnosed with a concussion, what do you advise as general management from a neurology standpoint? What is their general management? So their general management, thinking about the four categories I talked about before, it's important to address kind of each of the symptoms that a patient may have. So let's say for headaches, treating with Tylenol, Motrin is completely fine, totally appropriate, but understand that too much of Tylenol or Motrin can cause rebound headaches as well. Uh, we do recommend uh, sleeping and resting, of course, but too much sleep, too much lack of exercise can also cause headaches and kind of fatigue and changes in mood. 
I recommend uh, hydration, eating well, symptoms of dizziness, nausea, headache, oftentimes can be remitted by taking these kind of breaks throughout the day. So that's what this kind of advance as tolerated, knowing when to take breaks um, before you induce your symptom. For instance, if you're walking fast, you're running, and that brings on the headache or the dizziness, kind of stopping and, and coming up with a plan for yourself that we, we also help out with kind of day to day. A lot of the inducible symptoms can be from reading, looking up and down, looking at your phone. And so sometimes there is some vestibular ocular dysfunction that happens after concussions, meaning your balance system and your visual system have a little bit of an imbalance. And as a result, you have symptoms that kind of come about. Rarely, we do recommend patients to go for vestibular therapy to help with the balance and kind of readjustment of that. We also recommend visual therapy, which can help with that as well. A lot of the headaches could be from the neck in itself, neck pain, neck strain, neck tightness. So light massage, physical therapy to help with that as well is sometimes very helpful. We mentioned the kind of school accommodations to help with the cognitive rest and to taking breaks as you're able to. So that's also very helpful. If you find that you're walking for half an hour and that creates your, that induces your symptoms, that triggers your symptoms, maybe walk for 25 minutes. Exactly. And then and avoid the, the whole situation. Exactly. If you find that being on your phone for more than 15 minutes causes you to have a headache, you get 10 minute phone time and then you have to put it away exactly. so as you avoid triggering your symptoms. Exactly. And then, and then the next day you, you might want to do 12 minutes and then the following day you might do 14 minutes until you're able to get back to what you need. One of the most important things I believe that's important for concussion management is cognitive behavior therapy. There's What's this, that? Yeah, it's, it's not talk therapy per se. It's restructuring of how you think about your concussion, your headaches and your symptoms. I think we all have a tendency to hamster wheel a little bit or catastrophize about how we're feeling. I've had a lot of patients who say, I'm worried that as soon as I go back, this is going to happen. I'm worried that as soon as I go back to school, I'm going to have a long day. It's going to be tiring. It's going to be exhausting. I'm going to have a headache. So cognitive behavior therapy are, are techniques that we recommend for a lot of our patients to help with restructuring how you think about it. That's a big part of the management, for, particularly if you have persistent concussion syndromes. It's particularly helpful for patients who have a little bit of underlying anxiety, migraines, and ADHD. It's very interesting. I want to thank you both for coming. This has been fantastic. It sounds like today we've heard about what happens when a kid comes to the emergency department. What are the disasters we want to avoid? We want to avoid the intracranial hemorrhages. When they have concussions, what we should do at home. And I just want to thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So with that, we conclude our episode of Pep Talk on head traumas and concussions. What have we learned? Well, we now know that CT scans only look for dangerous bleeding in the brain and are not necessary for every kid who comes in with a head injury. In fact, sparing the radiation will be more of a benefit than not most of the time. We learned it is okay to let a child sleep after a concussion and that most concussions have a wide range of symptoms. These symptoms improve with time, sleep, and brain rest with gradual return to our normal routine. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Mintu Do and Dr. Karishma Parikh. Next time, we'll be discussing a topic that was closely related to our first episode, febrile seizures. I will be joined by pediatric emergency physician, Dr. Neil Miele, and pediatric neurologist, Dr. Genevieve Gabriel. Do you like what you hear on Pep Talk? Have comments, questions on subjects we have discussed? 
check out our website at www.peptalkpodcast.net. And feel free to email me at rich at peptalkpodcast.net. In the future episodes, I want to answer some of those questions. And please, if you like what we do, follow us, like, and share on your favorite podcasting app or social media platform. It really helps us. Just like we really like to help you. One pep talk at a time. <laughs>